Today's reading is from Matthew chapter 8, uh, sorry, 3, Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, taken from the New International Version. Matthew 3, verses 1 through 8. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of Jordan, of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, you we who warned you to flee from the coming wrath, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Good morning. Just to let you know, we're kind of out of rotation on the preaching schedule. I was supposed to be preaching next Sunday, and uh, Corey Taylor was supposed to be here today. But he had a family reunion to be at today, so he asked if he could swap spaces with me. So, now that the corrections have been made, good morning and welcome. Our purpose for today, for the next few minutes, is to examine the subject of true repentance. John the Baptizer, as we have seen from the reading, was very serious about the matter of repentance. And when you think about that description, John the Baptist was rather a wild-looking man. He didn't wear normal clothes as the people did of his day. He had a garment made of camel's hair. It probably wasn't very stylish. A leather belt kind of cinched it around him. In comparison to the religious leaders of his day, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who would have been very well-dressed men. They were probably well-groomed, took care of their appearance, and also appeared to be very religious individuals. But just being religious, like these men, the Pharisees and the Sadducees of their day, we have seen as we read through the scriptures, particularly through the, the gospel accounts, but even to some extent through the letters of Paul, that these individuals were not pleasing to God. And I would suggest to you that that would be very true today for anybody who thinks just being a religious person is going to make them pleasing to God. In fact, I have, I have never ever wanted to be viewed as a religious person because there's a certain image that those who appear to be religious uh, have in the eyes of other people. I would prefer to have someone think that I'm a follower of Christ. 
and that, that I try to be a spiritual individual, but not a religious one. And so, as we think about this, what does repentance actually mean? I looked it up in the Thorndike Barnhart Dictionary, which I've had from my high school days. So it's a pretty old dictionary. And the word for repentance there is sorrow for doing wrong and sorrow regret. It also gives a synonym for contrition. But that definition falls far short of the true meaning of what repentance is, is and what it involves. You see, a person can have regret or sorrow because they have been caught out in something they've been doing that is wrong or they've been found out about it and they have been embarrassed by it. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 10. He says, For the sorrow that is, is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. The Greek word for repentance, or translated repent, indicates a change of outlook and attitude towards sin, which then leads a person to godly sorrow. A change of mind, a turning to God, a change of direction. In other words, about face from the direction that you have been headed in. But Paul says here that worldly sorrow, worldly sorrow leads to death. Why do you think that is? I think that is because that person has not taken God into account in regard to what they have done. They are embarrassed. The worldly sorrow, they've been caught. And they're embarrassed by being caught or found out in something they have been involved in or something they have done. But they never ever take that extra step to actually say, God, this is wrong before you. That person who has worldly sorrow hasn't really changed their mind about sin in their life. And if that person goes through their life without repentance, you can be sure that this one fact is as true as the sun coming up every morning that that person's life will not be a fulfilled life. It will be more likely a life of strife and emotional difficulties. So, on this subject of repentance, let's talk first about individual repentance. And let's just underline the fact that nobody can repent for someone else. And when I was Thinking about that, I thought about the love that parents have for their children. A bond that is forged between that parent and child the moment the parent lays eyes on that child. And I believe that if possible, most, if not all, parents would gladly take the punishment for their children. A man I once knew whose son had died in a snowmobile accident. When he heard what had happened, he rushed to the hospital. And he asked the medical people 
in his grief and in his stress, he basically said, take whatever you need from me, but save the life of my son. Too often on the news we hear that numbers of parents lose their children. And unfortunately, this is something we see over and over again. Of parents who have lo- or heard of parents who have lost their children through addictions to the drug culture. They can see the pain in their children's lives, the addiction, the ever deepening dependence on those drugs. They can see alienation from their family, from, of that child's life from their family and their friends. And at times, even death by overdose or having them murdered. You've probably heard parents say this, and this has been on the news too. It's too late for, and they will name that child. But they have decided, that parent has decided to dedicate their life to trying to make sure that no other young people suffer that same fate as their child. If you've ever heard that or witnessed that, you know the pain that is in that parent's life. No parent ever wants to live out such a terrible situation. But this fact remains true. That repentance from sin, any sin, or addiction, any addiction, has to be the individual's responsibility. Nobody else can do that for you. And I use a couple of examples here. The first I use is the Apostle Paul for his his Roman countrymen. Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. I'm telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have a great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ, for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. And before I comment on that, I'd like to read of another great man of history who had those same sentiments for his people. That man was Moses. And in Exodus chapter 32... Verse 32 and 33, just after the Israelites have sinned by worshipping the golden calf that Aaron had made for them while Moses was up on the mountain taking down the, the Ten Commandments from God. And in verse 32, Moses, when he finds what they have done, Worshipping that idol, involving themselves in sexual immorality. He says to God, but now if you will forgive their sin, and if not, please blot me out of your book, which you have written. And the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. I want to talk about that book in just a little while yet, because that book is very, very important. But going back to what Paul said here about willing or wishing that he could be accursed for the sake of his kinsmen, 
according to the flesh. I want to use a word that my one of my two little great-grandsons learned when he was three years old. And that word was amazing. And whenever he talked to us, he didn't have that many words, but you'd say something to him, amazing. You know, what Paul said here literally is amazing when you think about it. His desire for his fellow Jews, that if they would only listen to and obey the gospel, he said, I would be willing to be accursed for their sake. Separated from Christ. If they would come to faith in Christ Jesus, perhaps some of you may even feel that way. If you have an unbelieving spouse or unbelieving or unfaithful children. But we know that this can never be because everyone either believes or disbelieves for themselves and only for themselves. But back to Paul and his amazing statement, because there's more to it than what we think here. His, ama his statement is very amazing, especially when you realize that throughout his ministry, it was the Jews who persecuted him, who did him physical harm, who were, re were responsible for having him imprisoned. And basically, you could even say who dogged him every step of the way as he went about preaching the gospel. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 22, listen to what Paul says. Speaking about his kinsmen, he says, Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so. In far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my countrymen, danger from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure upon me of concern for all the churches. I think we can see from that reading that Paul's life was no cakewalk. His life was filled with a great, great amount of difficulty. And much of that difficulty was brought upon him by his own kinsmen, the Jews. And yet he could make that statement. Let's look at another example. Naaman, the Syrian. 
And I've always thought this was such, such a powerful, powerful example. In Second Kings, uh, sorry, Second Kings chapter 5, beginning in verse 9. And by the way, Naaman comes to know God because of whom? Do you remember? Because of a tiny little slave girl. A little girl who had been taken away from her family against her will and probably against theirs. And had become a servant to Naaman's wife. And it was this little girl who was the catalyst in what happens with this great man. Listen to it. So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots. Naaman is a leper, by the way. And we don't appreciate leprosy. And when I say appreciate, we don't understand leprosy in our country because basically we don't see that sort of thing. But I've been in India and I've seen firsthand the results of leprosy in a person's life. And it is not pleasant. So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots and stood at the doorway of the house of Elisha. Now, if you don't realize, Elisha was one of the great, great prophets of the Old Testament. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored to you, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was furious and went away and said, Behold, I thought he would surely come out to me. And stand and call on the name of the Lord and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. Then his servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father, had the prophet told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Then he returned to the man of God with all his company and came and stood before him and said, Behold, now I know that there is no God in all the earth, but in Israel. So please take a present from your servant. Of course, Elisha did not take a present. He wasn't out for money for what he was doing. But I want us to think about this man, Naaman. He was an important man, and you can see from that reading that he knew it. He was highly respected. He was valiant as a warrior. He was wealthy. He had many men at his command, and he was confident to the king. He had the king's ear. And so he is incensed, he's enraged, and he's furious at the treatment he receives from the prophet Elisha. Elisha wouldn't even come out to speak to him. He just sent a message to the door, go and tell this guy what he has to do. Give him a message and tell him to go and dip himself in the Jordan River. And of course, Naaman, because he's a great man, a wealthy man, an important man, he is enraged and he's furious because he's not used to treatment like this. He's more likely to have somebody coming out bowing to him and hit and calling his praises. And so he's enraged and furious. But Naaman's servants, and there's very little said about them, 
But don't you think they were quite the individuals? They were not so high and mighty. They were not so proud. Because they go and they say, listen, if he'd asked you to do something great, wouldn't you have done it? This is not much. Just go and do it. And so Naaman's servants couldn't do anything for him. He had to do it for himself. And the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey, the famous radio commentator, used to say, the rest of the story is this. The Naaman listened to his servants. He went out and he dipped himself seven times in the Jordan River. And he came away not with scaly, flaky skin, maybe about to lose your fingers or your lips or your nose. He came away with skin like a little child. And he came away cured physically. But he also came away cured spiritually. Because he recognized that the idol gods that he had been serving were no gods. And that there is one and only true, true God. And that he, from that point on, would serve him. So we've talked about how important it is for individual repentance. Secondly, I want to talk about why should a person repent. Why should I repent? Why should you repent? Listen to Jesus' admonition to his generation. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, he says, From that time Jesus began to preach and say, Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. See, if mankind, if you and I did not have to answer for our sins, repentance wouldn't really be necessary. But Jesus and John the baptizer stated this was important to the people in the first century, and therefore, It is important in the ages following those statements. In Luke chapter 13, Jesus talks about a situation that is found nowhere else in the Bible. And to my my knowledge, there's no historical recollection of this or account of this situation either. So this is the one and only place you will find what happened here. Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. Now, on the same occasion, there were some present, and this is, by the way, Jesus talking about repentance, concerning repentance. Now, on the same occasion, there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered and said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now, apparently, what happened here from the reading is that there had been some Galileans who had been sacrificing to God. And Herod's, uh, um, the soldiers, probably Pilate's soldiers, had come in and had killed them mingling the blood of their sacrifices with the sacrifices that they had on the altar. 
And Jesus' message here basically is this, repent or perish. And it has been true throughout the ages and through the centuries since Jesus spoke these words. You know, sometimes, sometimes because of our own humanness and our weaknesses and our lack of understanding of some things, when we see somebody who is, has something terrible happen to them, the temptation might be to think it's because of their sin. They have obviously done something terrible to be deserving of this thing. Let me say to you, if you ever have these thoughts, and hopefully we don't, but if you've ever had these thoughts, be very careful. Think about what Jesus, is, Jesus says here. All of us, all of us need to repent. And just because this happened to those people doesn't mean they were any worse than you or I. But I want to, as we talk about this and the seriousness of repentance, I want to talk about a person who basically refused to repent. Now, maybe you know people who refuse to repent. They're in a dangerous situation. So I'm going to give you a homework assignment. I'm not going to read the whole thing. It would be too long. But Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. And let me just say that this scripture was a great, great, in fact, it was the thing that influenced me to become a Christian, to make my decision to follow Christ. But let me read just part of it. Luke 16, beginning in verse 26, and this is about the rich man and Lazarus. Jesus says, after they have died, and where the rich man has ended up in a terrible, terrible place, and Lazarus has ended up in Abraham's bosom, which obviously is a good place. Jesus says, and besides all this between us, this is between the rich man and, and Lazarus, between us and you there is a great chasm fixed, in order that those who wish to come over from here to you may not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment." But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. But he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, the scriptures, what we call the Bible, if they will not listen to what's written in scripture, if they will not listen to what's written in the Bible, Neither will they be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. And there's a principle in, in this reading, in this account that Jesus talks about here. There's a principle that many people who are alive at this present time do not realize today. Spiritual blindness can cause many people not to think about what happens after they die. 
They just go merrily through life. You've maybe, maybe heard people use the expression, and I did when I was a boy, maybe a teenager, and I didn't really understand it. I didn't real, realize how serious what was being said to me was, but I remember the statement. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. I heard that statement, but it didn't, didn't impact me. It does now. Because the fact is, what that statement basically says is, hey, live it up. Do whatever you want to do while you're here, because one day, it's going to be curtains. You're going to be dead. And you can't do those things and enjoy those things. Yet what's not realized is eating and drinking and being merry. Well, in some ways, there's nothing wrong with those things done in a proper way. Yet when it's lived to excess, it leads to where the rich man ended up. Spiritual blindness causes many people not to think about what happens to them after they die. Some are afraid to address this question head on in regard to their own life, and they just hope that things will turn out okay. And maybe you've heard people say that. If they've been asked, do you know where you're going after death? Well, I don't know for sure, but I, I hope so. They might be living by their works, the scales, and the balance method. That's the, way I, that's the way I lived. Hoping that the good things in my life would outweigh the many bad things in my life. And that somehow that would all balance itself out. Never will, never has, and never will. And yet others think there is no eternity. That there's only blackness and non-existence. So eat, drink, and be merry. For tomorrow you die, and you don't know a thing, and nothing else happens. That's a lie. The rich man and Lazarus is the answer to this question, once for all, of what happens to a person after they die. Lazarus didn't end up where he ended up because he was poor. And the rich man didn't end up where he ended up the rich man, by the way, is sometimes referred to by the name Dives. And so Dives, the rich man, didn't end up where he ended up because he was rich. The difference was that these two men, one of them took God into account in his life, the other didn't. Every person has a soul and will one day answer for their life before God. Romans 14 and verse 10 says, For we must all stand before the judgment seat of God. We don't stand there on the basis of anybody else. We stand there on the basis of ourselves and ourselves only. And so, my third point. What does true repentance mean? Peter said in Acts chapter 3 verse 19, Repent, therefore, and return, that your sins may be wiped away, in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. I've already basically said that repentance is a change of mind. 
And that once a man or a woman changes his or her mind and attitude towards sin and their sin in particular and to the evil that is in their life and that they decide to repent of that, it will lead to a changed life. In Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 45, just before Jesus ascended, he said these words. The Bible says first, then he, Jesus, opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And these are the words Jesus said to them. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Jesus opened the minds of the disciples. What did he open their minds to? To understand the scriptures. Maybe that needs to be our prayer as well, that God will open our mind to the scriptures that we will understand as we read. But they were to understand the scriptures that pointed to this, that he was going to the hill of Golgotha to die on the cross, not for his own sins, but for yours and for mine. And that he was going to be raised from the dead. And he was going to ascend to heaven. And that that message and that repentance from sins is to be preached or proclaimed to all the nations beginning at that time. And until he comes again or until we go home ourselves. See, this message is still as needed today in a society where good is called evil and evil is called good. And I've lived long enough to tell you that while things weren't perfect when I was younger, they were sure a lot better than they were today. That message, repent or perish, still needs to be proclaimed. Probably the best-known scripture on repentance is from Peter, found in Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Repent and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. See, there's some good conditions about this whole thing. If a person will repent of their sins... And turn to God. If they will obey the gospel by confessing with their mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. If they will be baptized for the forgiveness of their sins. That person will then be saved. And their name will be recorded in the Lamb's book of life in heaven. What a wonderful thing. To have your name recorded in the book of life. Because God knows you by name. And one day, your name and my name will be called. 
So how important is that? Well, let me tell you, as we've just had graduation, high, some of the high school students, and pretty well every high school probably across Canada, certainly here in Manitoba, there's one student of all the students that is selected for the Governor's General, Governor General's Award, and that is a high honor. Some people are given the, the award of the buffalo. And to be a member of the order of the buffalo is a high order. But those are earthly things. Everyone can have their name recorded in the book of life. How important are that? What are the benefits? Let me tell you just a few. I love these scriptures. Isaiah 38, 17, the writer says to God, For you, God, have cast all my sins behind your back. Psalm writer in Psalm 103, verse 12 says, As far as east is from the west, so far have you removed my sins from me. Was the poet Rudyard, uh, Rudyard Kipling that said, east is east and west is west, and never the twain shall meet. As far as east is from the west is how far God takes our sins. Isaiah 43, 25, I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my name's sake, and I will not remember your sins. Psalm 25, verse 7. Do not remember the sins of my youth or my transgressions according to your loving kindness. Remember me for your sake, O Lord. And for many of us, we say amen. What a huge relief. We've talked about individual repentance. We've talked about why a person should repent. And we've talked about what true repentance means. In all likelihood, all of you who are in the hearing of my voice today have already done these things. But perhaps there is someone who is listening to this sermon and thinks, no, I really have never truly repented of my sins. Or maybe your sin, has, your life has been broken by sin and disobedient to God. Or you may be in a lot of pain because of past decisions you've made. Or broken relationships that you have suffered through. Or perhaps you've wandered away from God. Even though you might be here today physically, you may have wandered away in your mind from God. If that's true for any of you, I have good news for you. Life change through Jesus Christ is yours if, if you truly want it. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. If this message speaks to you, if it speaks to your heart, May I invite you to come with the words of a beautiful old gospel hymn. Come home, come home. All who are weary, come home. Earnestly, tenderly, Jesus is calling. Calling, O sinner, come home.
truly, as that song we sang just before the sermon, our sins are many, his mercy is more. If you'd like to speak to me about this subject, I would be most happy to talk to you in person, or give me a call, and we'll talk. God bless you, and thank you for your attention.